20. Louise looked at her watch. She found it was still only marginally after four and couldn't quite decide whether that was a good thing to discover or not. Time usually dragged when it was headed for a particularly exciting destination. Christmas Eve was scientifically proven to be the longest 24 hours in the modern day calendar, even for a woman who'd been around the block as many times as Louise. Every year brought with it another chance for Father Christmas to bring back her virginity, taken from her at far too young an age. The great man never managed to reinstate her purity in its entirety. Well, the poor bloke wasn't a miracle worker. He always brought her plenty of expensive gifts from the sort of men who rather naively believed that he was, though. Something anticipated purely with dread, like a cervical smear examination or a trip to the dentist, that would always whiz round as though it paid old father time extra to get him to step on it. Although, once he had abandoned her there and then driven off, the seconds would revert back to their more familiar heel-kicking tempo. Whether it was a dental appointment, three rounds with her gynaecologist, or a date with dinner, a show and then breakfast, there seemed to be any number of activities which required her to open something, lie back and leisurely think of England. There had been men in her past who would have made great fathers, but of course that hadn't really been their attraction in those days. They were financially comfortable, aesthetically acceptable, and often had a wife or a girlfriend on hand to ensure their guilty exit from the scene for long periods. Periods. God damn it. She was wasting the entire afternoon on carnival activities when she really should have been devoting herself to those with more than just a kernel of the carnal about them. She should not have been stuck there in the middle of a marathon session of prize bingo, desperately trying to keep her mind on the job. That wasn't easy either. It was astonishing how often the number 69 kept appearing, as if from nowhere, and hijacking her thoughts completely. There didn't seem very much point in continuing with that little train of rather pornographic thought. Historically, her handbag had carried a perfume, her purse, and an emergency makeup repair kit. These days it was a thermometer, a turkey baster, and an empty old tic-tac box. That would, in all probability, be the cold reality of Humphrey's next major contribution to her existence. Time had slowed down in advance of it. Of course it had. Her whole adult life had been spent with that particular goal lurking guiltily in the back of her mind. What would she have left once it had actually happened, and happened in a way that was far from ideal? Wishes that came true tended to be as rare as hen's teeth, and there was a very good reason for that. Most wishes were purely selfish notions and very badly thought out to begin with. This one wallowed in its status as being pretty much the most selfish desire she'd ever associated herself with. Leaving Humphrey in the first place, disappearing from his life without so much as a forwarding address, that could well have rivalled it. There had been no place in his life for her. That had been the somewhat dodgy reasoning behind her actions. The original dalliance with Michael, such as it was, had been a statement something born from the desperation of not having Humphrey's attention. It had been pretty shameful, and it hadn't even worked. Of course, if it had worked, it would have been reclassified as genius. She'd simply been no match for Anthea, as difficult or even impossible as that had always been to believe. And she was still very much around, very much in his thoughts, and indeed in hers. No wonder he'd chosen Anthea over her all those years ago, 
given how unbelievably important she obviously was. The next time he saw her, she would look devastatingly attractive as well. What was even more ridiculous was that Louise herself had been instrumental in her receiving the attentions of Sven and his team of magicians. Humphrey had used her, plain and simple. She must have been out of her mind to believe him, with his pathetic claims to have finally given up on all thoughts of a reconciliation with his ex-wife and his lies about merely wanting the best for her. Well, he hadn't actually said any of that. All Louise had to work on was his instruction to have Anthea at Sven's door for nine o'clock. The rest of that might well have come straight from her own imagination. But when they got back together, Louise's contribution to things would be mentioned rather prominently in dispatches. Good old Louise. Stupid old Louise. She would go and tell him to forget the whole thing then, just as soon as she could extricate herself from bingo calling duties. Even if he told her she could shove her show that evening deep into one of her four corners, at least she would have her pride. Life would go on, emptily, but at least she could still be selfish at her own discretion without being accused of fouling up other lives as well. Besides, there was always next month. Although how long she would be able to rely on that certainty was something she didn't want to spend too long thinking about. Men didn't know how lucky they were fathering children throughout the majority of Shakespeare's seven ages, and all without a second thought. Oh good, another winner. Another NAF prize. Another ticket to the show that evening. Not much of a draw, admittedly. She wasn't quite sure why she was even bothering to promote it anymore. Any celebrations which might come about as a result of it wouldn't involve her. Not now. The only consolation for her would come as a direct result of her getting as many of her own agents in that audience as possible, and then giving that man the most uncomfortable ride of his life. Oh, the irony. It was to be hoped that a half bottle of cheap plonk per passenger would serve as ample bait with which to ensure their willing surrender. And they wouldn't be getting anything out of her until they'd worked for it either, which was a customer in their own personal life more honoured in the breach than in the observance. Something had gone wrong here. Very wrong. In the early hours of that morning, she and Humphrey were as close as she could ever recall them being. He had seemed to indicate that he was thinking seriously of helping her out of her small predicament. Something she would cheerfully have allowed him to do right there and right then. Right in the middle of the all-you-can-eat buffet. It wouldn't exactly have been the first time. Much to her shame. Instead... He had promised her the world and then left her with a bit too long in which to contemplate things. A bit too long in which to contemplate all the various flaws in the plan as she saw them. Funnily enough, the more carefully she looked, the more flaws she found. The act of observation itself seemed to be enough to make even a great plan disintegrate right in front of the very eyes that looked at it. Even greater damage to the one particular aspect of the plan that she was most interested in came when she declared an interval in that session of the bingo and made her way out on deck to stretch her legs. Intrigued by the noise and kerfuffle down below, she leaned out over the railings to try to get a better look. It was a demonstration of some description. At least, it had all the right hallmarks. The Tories had introduced a new kind of envy between the haves and the have-nots, and nowhere was that kind of thing more evident than in the perception of a ship like that one. It was all very well for the people of Belfast to give it large with the envy and the jealousy, 
But most of these passengers had saved for years for their chance to be envied, for their chance to traipse through the place in their finery, even for their chance to play prize bingo in the luxurious surroundings of the Copacabana cocktail lounge with an old slapper like her. She was just opening her mouth in order to translate those very sentiments into the sort of words that might get through to the closed-minded individuals currently abeam her when she stopped. That wasn't a demonstration about the unfairness of life. Well, not unless it was somehow related to the unfairness of not being blessed with a bona fide 40-inch chest. She might have nipped down there and borrowed a placard herself had that been the case. She looked more closely at the sentiments being expressed in words of plain English, upon what looked to be every one of those placards and banners. A feeling of extreme nausea swept over her. Humphrey was a dead man. It was as simple as that. That damn boy. He'd always been manipulative and attention-seeking. That wasn't new. To get Oxbridge involved, though, that had been totally unforgivable. Fair enough, the damning indictments had actually come from Michael's own mouth. But they'd been deliberately provocative, the pair of them. Humphrey, with his wide-eyed look of silent amusement, and Oxbridge, with his deliberate misinterpretation of Michael's own sentiments. At least he would be in no doubt now as to Michael Lovewell's sexual orientation. He was all man. He must have mentioned it seven or eight times. The very idea of him being anything else was completely preposterous. Of course, even by admitting such a thing, he was selling himself short in many ways. Why shouldn't the other 50% of the population find him attractive? He had brains, he had looks, he had a certain amount of brawn, and he could handle a golf cart like Odysseus. No question about that. Fine. He could consent to being a pin-up for every right-minded yet discerning individual irrespective of whichever team they batted for. Although, having said that, he couldn't be expected to make any exception whatsoever for Labour voters. Well, he did have to draw the line somewhere. As for being in a relationship with Humphrey, the whole idea had been utterly absurd. It was difficult enough for Michael to have to admit that Humphrey was his son, without having to branch out into any of the rather more difficult walks of life which might have involved him being something even closer. And yet, Michael had just spent three hours wandering around Belfast in the pursuit of odds and sods his son had deemed to be essential for his forthcoming entertainment enterprise. What was more, he had done so with a sense of purpose which had precluded any and all mentions of his own legal and financial expertise. When he thought now of all those shopkeepers who would never know just what an important customer they had served that day, it was quite, quite unbelievable. That boy was persuasive. No, that boy was manipulative. He had a charm about him, no question. He could have achieved great things in any chosen field. Always provided, of course, that it was one that had been chosen by Michael. That would have been the law, naturally. The legacy was over as far as that was concerned. Some legacy. Michael's own father had been a bin man and there had been generations of manual labourers before that. That was what made Michael such a monumental success. The odds had been against him at every turn. Then again, perhaps he himself was the anomaly, 
the disappointment. That definitely put the pressure on him then, if that was indeed the case. The entire Lovewell line could die out with that boy, and nobody would ever realise Michael had even existed. Dovetailed between a practically penniless and pathetically hopeless modern-day transvestite and Henry VIII's rat-catcher, which was, thankfully, as far back as the Lovewell record seemed to go, who in hell would ever think to look for him? Some future Dr David Starkey, looking desperately for anyone of any worth during the whole historical period of Michael's lifetime, wouldn't even bother looking at him. It would be Noel Edmonds or that chap with the glasses from Sorry. They would be the representatives of that age. At least that scoundrel would owe him now. This had to be worth a snivelling little phone call in the middle of the night to come along immediately and fix his cistern. Michael would attend to that sort of thing personally, purely for the chance to perform his trademark little punch of triumph right in front of Humphrey's face. A cowboy hat, a trilby, a bag of straw. The list of oddities he had just purchased in his son's name went on and on. He had a horrible feeling he'd been a party to some very much premeditated weirdness. But he'd done it anyway. Why? Well, first off, because Humphrey had quite specifically said that he would then owe him, which was merely a longhand form of saying that Michael had won. More importantly, there had been some mention made of Louise and how Humphrey was supposedly helping her. Louise. She'd been the main reason for Lovewell Senior's compliance, not to mention his very unusual reluctance to visit any of the local hostelries. Well, after what had happened to him in Liverpool, whatever in fact that had been, he couldn't risk any of the local brews, not with Louise showing him the sort of interest she had done the previous evening. Hopefully she hadn't shared anything intimate with him on that occasion, either in terms of intelligence or anything more aerobic. It would be a shocking waste of her efforts if she had, given the rather significant gaps in his memory. Interestingly, his sojourn onto dry land had been timed extraordinarily badly from the point of view of someone who placed a great deal of value on information, depending upon who did and did not have it. He had initially disembarked before Jim J. Johnson of Milwaukee, Wisconsin had made any kind of noticeable impact. In other words, before the confidential passenger list had fallen into the wrong hands. He'd noticed the boobs, of course. He was a red-blooded male, as he had told Oxbridge and anybody else who could hear him seven or eight times that day. Humphrey's giggling had taken away much of the gravitas of each declaration. And whatever he had mumbled about protesting too much was thoroughly uncalled for, although it had led to Oxbridge's voluntary confession that his own son was part of a theatrical company in Milton Keynes. Things hadn't seemed quite so bad after hearing that. Milton Keynes, for heaven's sake. That was practically Scotland. At least Humphrey was disgracing his family name on a regular basis from within touching distance of the M25. With his shopping list ticked off and feeling in a rather similar state himself, Michael had returned to the safety of the ship just before the multitude of enthusiastic part-time mathematicians alongside it had managed to take two and two and make it 27. He'd been vaguely aware of the name Anthea alongside one or two of the portraits, but then there were an awful lot of Antheas around. Whoever was in that picture was an awful lot of an Anthea all by herself. It wasn't until he was lugging all of his purchases up the gangplank that the erroneous conclusions began to be recorded for posterity behind him. 
Humphrey's name was being added to one or two of the banners, along with heartfelt pleas from the assembled crowds to please make it work this time, please don't take each other for granted, and please, for the love of Christ, just abandon your current activities and come and give us a bloody wave. Then again, what on earth could he even have added? He'd been instrumental in their divorce, almost to the point of playing an extraordinarily impressive solo for most of the proceedings. That wouldn't have impressed the crowds, not at all. Neither with any little foray into the realms of the reality of either of their existences. Fate had surely played a hand in his movements that day. That, and a growing need to see Louise again in daylight, in order to try and gauge from her just what had occurred between them the night before. He would have to approach that one rather carefully, cross-examining her with extreme caution and immense cunning. That shouldn't present too much of a problem. He'd used the same technique back in the depths of history to find out how much Humphrey's mother had spent every week on shoes. Things were going well. Humphrey might even have been tempted to say they were going brilliantly, except that might then have tempted fate to come along and wreck things for the lot of them. There was the semblance of a fairly decent evening's entertainment before him up there. True, half the stars of the show were asleep, but they were still compelling, even in that state. Leopold could snore chopsticks, which was impressive enough in its own right. Conscious, he'd already proved more than capable of banging out the great Liberace's version of it, alongside as many of the showman's other hits as Humphrey had thought to ask for. He was truly amazing, needing no written music from which to work. Mind you, that sort of memory feat was not altogether unique. Anthea had utilised similar powers to record verbatim every single instance down the years when Humphrey had been at fault. It was amazing she'd ever had any space left up there in her memory banks for anything else, come to think of it. Leopold had been given a somehow business card straight away. That was it. Just that word. That word, plus his telephone number. By the time folks got their hands on his card, they had already chatted with him and they already knew precisely where he was coming from. Leopold was amazing, and nobody knew it. That was a slow-burning pyrotechnic right there. The length of the fuse was yet to be determined, although his performance in the Grand Lobby the previous evening might have indicated a significant shortening of it in recent times. It was a good thing indeed that Humphrey had come along. Jeremiah was enjoying a brief nap, which was spellbinding in its own way. It really was quite hypnotic, watching every little inhalation and its reciprocal, ever aware that each and every one could well be his last. Humphrey had taken to coughing extraordinarily loudly at regular intervals to try and keep him from falling asleep too deeply, lest he suddenly develop a taste for such a thing on an infinitely more permanent basis. That was quite a responsibility, really, when you looked at it. Still, never mind. If the worst came to the worst, Barney could always have been deployed. You'd have to be long dead to simply lie there happily while he warbled tunelessly at you. Barney. Yes, he was having a thoroughly undeserved kit too. On the whole, it was probably for the best. None of the routines Humphrey had tried to teach him had actually registered, not even in Barney's short-term memory. By heaven, that thing must have been earning a wage under spectacularly false pretenses. Spontaneity. That was the only chance as far as Barney was concerned. But then Humphrey had been expecting that. Their recent relationship had been built on nothing less, if one could somehow gloss over the fraud and the deception and the lies. 
Clearly Barney wasn't too bothered about such things, judging by the fact he was sleeping like the proverbial baby. Anthea would have her work cut out there, without a shadow of a doubt. Good. They deserved each other. More importantly, Anthea would be rushing headlong back into his arms in no time, begging for Humphrey's forgiveness and promising her obedience and acquiescence in respect of his every subsequent word. Except he didn't want that. And he had sufficient faith in his ex-wife to be able to bet anything in his possession, not that his divorce had left him with very much by way of collateral, that Anthea would never in a million years ever do such a thing. She would rather end her days alone than ever admit to Humphrey that she might have been wrong. He had to admire her for that, even if it did constitute quite a leap into the realms of being completely crackers. Anthea was amazing, simply spectacular, and that sod over there, farting violently in his sleep, had better damn well realise it or else. He was thinking about those arse cheeks again. That was dangerous territory, irrespective of the angle from which one attacked it. That was dangerous territory in itself. Was it a good thing that Louise was advancing towards him at a great rate of knots? True, it would temporarily take his mind off those arse cheeks. Then again, she did not look at all happy. You bastard! Yes, he'd been right then. She wasn't happy. And this was somehow Humphrey's fault because... I suppose you think you're very clever, don't you? Well, at least they were getting a bit closer to the actual crux of the matter. She'd asked for his opinion, his actual opinion, with space left in the ether for him to answer it too. Anthea would never have done that. She would never have asked any question for which an answer was not already prepared in her own mind. Naturally, an answer which pointed very much towards his own culpability in some sort of nefarious activity. Otherwise, the question would presumably never have been asked. Hi, Lou. Funny how that salutation, when accompanied by her own name, can make her look so downright terrifying. I trusted you. Ah, now this was familiar territory. Anthea had yelled something similar on any occasion where she'd entrusted to him the responsibility of putting up a shelf or mowing the lawn. More specifically, she had bellowed that phrase upon discovering that Humphrey had used his time infinitely more efficiently to shave his legs or wash his hair or rearrange his CDs into some sort of alphabetical order. Louise looked good when riled, although it was perhaps not the most appropriate situation in which to tell her that. You told me you didn't love Anthea. I don't think I quite said that. He knew very well he hadn't said that. It would have taken an expert in the tortures to have got him to admit a thing like that. Even then, it would have been a lie. In fact, it would not ever have happened. Mere physical tortures could not have forced him to denounce Anthea as being anything other than the love of his life. Well, unless Barney had been involved somehow, singing to him. But surely that sort of thing was against the Geneva Convention. I believed you. That was back into the realms of the shelf constructing or the lawn mowing. Humphrey decided that the only realistic thing he could do was look contrite and yet charming. It was an expression which had certainly not grown rusty during his 12-year incarceration with Anthea. Sorry, darling, you have the advantage of me. Nice work, Humphrey. Chucking a nice, unexpected darling into the situation. It never failed. Whether it was Anthea at her most homicidal, or now Louise, 
who was currently in the grip of some part-time hormones that Humphrey couldn't even begin to understand. Don't tell me you haven't seen what's going on outside. Fair enough. There was no answer expected to that. Not if he had any desire to sing baritone with the local carol singers in three months' time. His charming look simply wasn't making the grade just recently. And she just looked angry. Extraordinarily angry. Do you want to see what we've been working on? It looked like a tableau from Sleeping Beauty up there. She had to have been wondering what they were all playing at. I don't give a monkey's what you've been working on. Well, if she had been wondering, then she was certainly hiding her curiosity remarkably well. You're a bastard! Some specifics would have been useful. He was trustworthy and reliable. For heaven's sake, she'd been talking about him fathering a baby for her. Something had happened. Something had changed. Had it been something Anthea had said to her? No. She would have mentioned it in her original telephone call. Michael. Perhaps it was him then. Although surely he would have mentioned it when he saw him. In that case, then, he was flummoxed. She seemed to contemplate her own position for a few moments, and then she grabbed a tight hold of his arm and dragged him from the auditorium. The initial move had been so unexpected that she'd almost pulled him over. The pair of them walked briskly. The pace gave Humphrey quite a bit of information as to their ultimate destination. It had to be somewhere nearby, because, angry or not, she couldn't have kept up that speed for very long. She wouldn't have wanted to lose all that momentum by stopping halfway to catch her breath, either. They had passed by numerous elevators, so it was more than likely something on this deck. Unless she was frightened of the silence which would accompany them on any mechanised trip to a higher or a lower one. He had the distinct feeling he was not going to like what she had waiting for him at their ultimate destination. The journey to it was rather exciting, though. Finally, they reached the door to the outer deck. Louise opened it with a force that almost took the thing right off its hinges. Fortunately, she dragged Humphrey safely through the doorway before it came back to clad him in the face. That was nice of her. It also left him nicely unblemished in the event that she fancied having a bash herself. They reached the rail and she finally released him. What is the meaning of that? She was expecting him to voluntarily go towards that rail and look down. Was she serious? A quick glance along the deck told him that there were no witnesses currently on the scene. The way she had dragged him along behind her also told him she would have no problems whatsoever in giving him a helpful little shove in the wrong direction. He moved along the rail, just out of reach of her, and tentatively glanced at the ground. He saw the crowd, so there were witnesses. He heard Louise moving towards him and instinctively jumped back. What's wrong, Lou? What have I done? Or not done? That should encompass every possible eventuality. He knew better than anyone that a man's responsibilities were many and varied, including quite a large number that only ever became known to him after he'd managed to somehow screw them up. She snorted her contempt for him in a way that reminded him of Anthea. This was actually a rather familiar situation to have found himself in. The heroine was different, but the villain of the piece was just the same. He must have become erroneously typecast. He was a nice guy, wasn't he? Perhaps you'd like to read out what it says on any one of those banners down there. 
Rhetorically speaking, he wasn't sure that he was going to like doing that sort of thing at all. He couldn't even read them from there anyway, not with the sun shining on them like that. That was something. At least she couldn't blame him for the weather. Although she'd probably give it a damn good try. Maybe if one of those people were to turn one of their signs towards him a little more. Or, better yet, Excuse me, what does it say on your banner, please? I can't quite make it out. Had they heard him? Good luck, Anthea and Humphrey. We well love you. He rather wished they hadn't. He'd been right then, about that bra. He turned towards Louise, who slapped his face with such ferocity that he wished he'd taken his chances with the door. It was grease all over again. Look at me, I'm Sandra D. Pow! You were going to use me? Hang on a second, you were going to use me? Damn it. He should have challenged the original accusation, not made things even worse for himself by seeming to engage in a round of pointless tit-for-tat. Never mind. The fact was that he had used her, if only to get Anthea safely out of the way. It wasn't quite in the same league as the way Louise had planned on using him, but she was hardly going to listen to reason on that one. Well, you can forget all about that now. Fair enough. What the hell do you mean, fair enough? Humphrey thought for a while, his mouth moving silently as it considered and then abandoned a hundred different possible answers. In the end, he decided to play it safe. I really don't know. Look, why don't you tell me what I meant, and then at least we'll both know. She looked him up and down contemptuously before turning on her heels and making for the door. He ran dutifully behind her, catching up with her just as she began to open it. Then, in a move which she had certainly not been expecting, he pushed the door firmly shut again and positioned himself squarely in front of it. Louise attempted to get past him, but achieved nothing more than a fairly substantial invasion of his personal space. He put his hands on her shoulders, forcing her to look into his eyes. Listen, I don't know what all those people are doing down there, but I can promise you one thing, it is nothing to do with me. She wanted to believe him. God, did she want to believe him. You can't tell me you don't still love her. Really? Oh, that was a relief. Whether I love her or not is not relevant, Lou. We are not getting back together. He fervently hoped that she either appreciated such a dangerous level of honesty or was unskilled at reading between the lines of ridiculous verbal suicide notes. Well, she obviously thinks you are. You're joking. Anthea doesn't know anything about it either. How could you possibly know that? Because, my darling, if she thought for one moment there were blown up photographs of her chest doing the rounds anywhere with my name attached to them, she would have come looking for me to lump me one long before you did. Louise felt a pang of deep regret. She should have been caressing that face, not assaulting it. Well, at least it solved her problem. He wouldn't ever dream of helping her now. You do still love her, then? Damn. He thought he got away with that. Yes. Yes, I love her. And I love you. I love a summer morning and a decent plate of chips. 
What can I tell you? I'm just a complete softie. Anthea could have told her that, unfortunately. I'm prettier than her, aren't I? Although she quite possibly wasn't now, thanks to her own stupidity and Sven's magic fingers. Yes. Yes, you are. Oh. She hadn't quite been expecting that. He'd said that with sincerity and more than a hint of sadness. And I'm a hell of a lot nicer than her, aren't I? He nodded, sparing her any discussion with regard to precisely how nice she could be and with precisely how many different people. Bless him. He was a sweetheart. I love you more than she ever could. He nodded again and then looked away. I know. But then what has she got that I haven't? She probably should have left things at the being prettier and being nicer stage. But those were shallow victories in relatively pointless battles. She was still losing the war, just the same as always. Humphrey shrugged. Just my heart, that's all. Nothing even really worth having. I wish I had it. Her words called him home unexpectedly from a rather uncharacteristic trip into self-pity. Her sincerity was beyond doubt. He could see that in her face. You know something, sweetheart? I wish you had it too. Our lives might have made a bit more sense that way, hey? She nodded sadly. Most men would have lied to me about all that, just to take advantage of me. Ah, oh, well, I'm nothing like most men. That line had sounded so much better in the quality control department of his head. Is it wrong for me to wish that you were? She rested her head against his chest, having reluctantly admitted defeat. Humphrey instinctively wrapped his arms around her, drawing her closer to him. Those moves of his were a pretty effective pillow, it seemed. But that was the only reason she wanted his body at that moment. There were two friends who happened to be supporting each other through some rather harsh revelations. That was all. Well, he was doing the supporting. But that was how things were supposed to happen. He'd read about it in history books. He was being strong and protective of her, while Louise herself was vulnerable and helpless. And devastatingly attractive. Would you mind very much if I kissed you? That voice, his brilliant voice, that voice possessed courage and daring. It also had a tendency to get him into rather a lot of trouble as well, but he wasn't going to worry too much about that now. Louise lifted her head and looked somewhat quizzically at him, an expression which somewhat removed most of the romance from the entire situation. I mean, I'm going to anyway. I was just wondering whether you were going to slap me again. She smiled at him. That was better. It wasn't necessarily a no, but it was better. I wouldn't slap you again. Really? That's interesting. I'd better kiss you then, hadn't I? He cupped her chin in his hand and angled her lips gently upwards, while at the same time brushing a strand of hair away from her face. It was a very impressive move, that. Very Clark Gable. He'd seen it in a film once. A Nightmare on Elm Street. Was that it? 
Remembering his professional code of ethics and that everyone he had dealings with must always have his complete and undivided attention, he abandoned himself to the moment. Even the sound of a crowd chanting his ex-wife's name and brass eyes could not have distracted him from that. Louise closed her eyes as their lips finally met. Michael had been waiting patiently for at least five minutes. Well, he'd waited patiently for about a half of one minute, and the rest of the time he'd been there very much under sufferance. That damn boy! Alas, he couldn't bring himself to simply dump all those bizarre little purchases backstage and then disappear. He wanted recognition, ideally even adulation. He'd gone out of his way to go ashore in order to help that little swine, an act of huge selflessness and great generosity. After all, it wasn't as though Michael had gained anything personally from it. Not yet, anyway. Perhaps Humphrey ought to lead the assembled company in a rousing little rendition of For He's a Jolly Good Fellow when he eventually turned up. They could then offer him polite but noticeable applause as he swanned his way out with some panache. To skulk out now, though, before forcing even so much as a thank you from Humphrey, was not practicable in a million years. Even if he did have to stay where he was, waiting for that damn boy for a fair proportion of them. Ah, there he was. Good grief, he was a shambles. Did Michael really want somebody looking like that, waxing lyrical about him? Not that the little ratbag ever would, more's the pity. Where have you been? Humphrey smiled at him. I'm sorry, sir. Have you been waiting for me long? Michael bristled visibly. Certainly not. I've got far more important things to do than hang around waiting for you. Humphrey smiled at him again. That lipstick's a bit much, isn't it? Even for you. Humphrey reacted as though he hadn't even realised he was wearing it. And then he did the most extraordinary thing. He took a tissue which had been safely tucked up his sleeve and he wiped the whole lot of it off. Just like that. He apologised to his father too. That was more like it. Blind, instant obedience. It was about bloody time. That beat any other show of gratitude that he could possibly have come up with. Oh, and God Almighty, it was Louise. What a tremendous time for her to put in an appearance. Just when Michael was looking his most masculine. Humphrey seemed uncomfortable in her presence, as well he might. He had treated that poor girl quite shamefully over the years. Good afternoon, Louise. How are you? Never better, thanks, Michael. Never better. Michael. Damn it. Right, the things you wanted are over there, boy. I won't charge you. If she thought he was a penny-pinching old miser, then she was wrong. Ah, no, I insist on paying. But if she thought for one second that he was going to let Humphrey make him look bad in front of her, then she was even more wrong. No, I'm afraid I can't let you do that. No? Oh, all right then. What the hell was this? Had he really just given up? Louise clearly couldn't believe it either, judging by the look on her face. Thank you very much, sir. No. He hadn't given up at all. Sir, he was up to something. Just a minute. 
He was trying to make himself look good in front of Louise. And what was more, Michael was going to be several English pounds out of pocket into the bargain. Paying for the privilege of being made to look a fool? No chance. I tell you what, call me Dad and we'll call it quits. There was a pause. How much do I owe you? Well, it wasn't exactly ideal, but at least Michael had flexed his far superior muscles. Louise would appreciate that. She walked calmly over to him and rested a suggestive little hand upon his. Pay no attention to him, Mike. I appreciate your efforts. Hooray! Yes, well, of course, when he told me that it was to help you, I naturally I was keen to do anything and everything within my power. Well, I appreciate that, and I'm sure you're going to come along later on and give me your full support, hmm? With Humphrey now halfway into her trophy cabinet, Louise was practically invincible. It was just a pity that her sultry voice made her sound like she was having an asthma attack sometimes. Michael was clearly a sucker for all that, judging by the way he was almost literally hanging on her every breathless word. Humphrey must have still been around there somewhere, although Michael wasn't about to tear his eyes away from this beauty in order to find him. He just hoped that he was watching, that was all. Watching how a real man treats his women, and how a real woman responds to him. Swapping makeup tips was one thing. Good old-fashioned flattery was something else. Actually, I was planning on giving a little rendition of something myself later on. Really? So you will be here then, Mike? Later on? You try and stop me. That's just marvellous. Well, now, I think since Humphrey is in nominal charge of the whole thing, well, I'd better just leave you in his more than capable hands. Wait a minute. He wasn't going to spend all afternoon being bossed around by that little reprobate. That little reprobate with the cocky little smile on his face. A smile he'd be well advised, like the lipstick, to wipe off pretty damn quickly. She couldn't just leave them there. She couldn't. There was no earthly point in trying to impress someone who wasn't even there. That was like living alone and washing your hands after a visit to your own toilet. Is there no other way? I'm afraid not. I mean, I've got to organise a table tennis tournament and then I've got to find a decent prize for whoever gets closest with their estimate of the number of anti-ageing tablets in my old pickled onion jar. I may be pushing my luck in trying to nick another bog roll from the captain. You'll be fine. I know you will. Outsmarted. Willingly. By a woman. The utter shame. Rather a nice shame, though. If one put to one side being forced to acquiesce to Humphrey in any way, shape or form. As if Michael could ever put a thing like that to one side. Listen, that's all very well but I refuse to be told what to do by him. Insubordination in the ranks, eh? Humphrey would have liked to work with Captain Mannering about the best way to stamp on that, if the poor fellow wasn't temporarily indisposed. Louise had done her best, trying to get that old windbag to fall into line for him. He had missed out on Greece, on the basis that it was going to be utter crap and not the sort of thing he would ever be into. Well, he would come to rue that day, all right because Greece was going to look like a Laurence Olivier masterpiece compared to what was going to hit the audience that evening. 
I do think you're overreacting, you know, sir. I mean, Louise wouldn't object to serving under me. Would you, Lou? Something dropped straight down from her throat, straight down through her chest, and hurtled towards her toes at a rapid rate of knots. Her asthma returned with a vengeance. Michael appeared quite concerned, which was very sweet of him. Humphrey simply looked at her innocently. Well, of course, I will have to do a bit of that later on, won't I? There's my five minutes, don't forget that. You've still got to explain to me the ins and outs of anything else you might want me to do. I thought you wanted to leave things as a bit of a mystery. Yes, that's true, I did. But if I'm under your direction, then perhaps I ought to be a little more forthcoming. Don't you think that a good director should be able to shoulder quite a bit of the responsibility for the performance himself? I mean, when it comes to the tempo of the piece and perhaps the choreography? The poor woman looked as though she was going to faint. He could do that to her? Wow! In fact, his rather diverse powers had pulled off a bit of a double whammy, given us how their private trip into the realms of subliminal advertising had managed to completely exclude Michael, the self-proclaimed star of the show. It was strange how the need for Michael to regain control of things superseded even his desire to keep Louise around. She and that boy were exchanging far too many meaningful glances for his liking, and he was currently out of his comfort zone. Not to mention out of pocket, and out of the limelight. Naturally, any director is only as good as the cast he has under him. Louise gasped. Humphrey interjected. That ought to make me a veritable Hitchcock, then. That was interesting. He could have picked any director by way of an example. Why not Trevor Nunn, for instance? Somebody relevant. But Hitchcock. Interesting. Still, it was inordinately satisfying to say the word cock in front of his father without any fear of repercussions. Especially the way he'd just gone and emphasised that particular syllable. I really ought to go. I've got some private rehearsals that I've got to fit in, don't forget. Oh, you don't want to over-rehearse, Lou. Keep something fresh for the actual performance. Don't you worry. I intend to. It was remarkable how... Once a conversation like this had been started, one that operated on multiple levels like this, it was extraordinarily difficult to break out of it. Now then, Mike, I don't want to hear any reports of you being naughty. She was fluttering her eyelashes at him like Jessica Rabbit. No, Louise. And he was nodding vigorously at her like Pepe Le Pew, with hearts practically coming out of both eyeballs. Humphrey might have thought to consider how appropriate that sort of thing was, or indeed wasn't, had he not been busy readjusting his underwear. Thank God he'd had the foresight to dump that leotard. In any case, she had a right to behave in any way she saw fit. If Anthea could get away with being a modern-day Lucretia Borgia, then Louise could certainly get away with being completely adorable. Anthea. Crikey! He hadn't thought about Anthea for a good 15 minutes. And they had been good. Every last one of them. Ah well. On the bright side, at least thinking of her now had removed the need for any further clandestine underpant reshuffles. Do you think you might go and check on one or two of the residents in the spa for me? She nodded. 
That was to have been her next stop in any case. For the sake of them all, that woman had to be kept safely under lock and key until Belfast and all of its associated placards, banners and maniacs were just a tiny speck in the ship's rearview mirror. Although the longer she remained under construction, the more dangerous the longer-term situation became. But Louise would simply have to take her chances. She moved closer to Michael and planted a huge kiss on his cheek. It remained there for all to see, courtesy of the ruby-red lipstick she'd freshly reapplied on the back of that intensely passionate experience earlier on. Had Michael been thinking with anything even remotely resembling his legal head, he might just have spotted the incredible similarity between the shade of lipstick they were both now wearing and the shade of lipstick he'd made Humphrey wipe off. But he was instead rather lost in the wilds of his imagination and completely oblivious to reality in most of its forms. He couldn't seem to focus on anything apart from the memory of Louise, whispering playfully in his ear for him to behave himself. Good heavens! Wait, though. She was whispering in that damn boy's ear now. Evidently, she used that move on everybody. Damn. And you, H, don't you forget you owe me one. That was an enigmatic little statement. Not really a whisper, either. That was promising. It could have had any number of meanings, spanning any number of occasions. Michael chose to believe she was referring to the fact that she'd defied all the odds to get both men in the same room, contemplating the corroboration, or indeed the recalibration, of their contempt for each other in order to collaborate unconventionally and contemporaneously. Yes, that made sense. For Humphrey, running everything through his doublespeak translator, things were significantly different. Don't you worry, Lou. I'm very much looking forward to giving it to you as well. With that, she was gone. Rather unsteadily, as the two love worlds could have testified. In fact, their eyes remained fixed to the point in space where she'd last been seen for some seconds after she'd vanished from view. That was when they realised the true horror of the situation they were in. She'd played them like a couple of old fiddles. They had no option now but to work together in at least some attempt at a cohesive partnership, for fear of looking like the one who was being awkward if everything went wrong. I was thinking I might be able to give you a little something from Rumpole of the Bailey. All the parts, obviously. That's very 80s. Humphrey at least seemed to do him the courtesy of contemplating the suggestion first before flinging it in the nearest bin. Oh, I'd say if you're going to be drawing on your life experiences like that, you'd be better off embracing the 70s instead and giving them some of your rising damp. Yes, of course. Straight for the belt. But then he stopped. Rather than hitch up his trousers in a move designed to evoke fear, but more likely to produce merriment, he smiled. He actually smiled. You mean I have the stage presence to pull off a rather decent Rigsby, don't you? What the heck? Humphrey could let him have that. It was better than hammering home the suggestion that he was an ageing, sex-starved skinflint with a property portfolio from the seventh level of hell. I didn't know you even watched any television, sir. You always struck me as being far too busy for that sort of nonsense. Ditto cinema, restaurants, theatre, swimming, strip joints, or wherever else a father and son could have spent time together and bonded. 
Still, there was always the apple tree. They had bonded in the shadow of that, all right. There's rather a lot you don't know about me, boy. Tell me something then, sir. Go on, something I don't know about you. Was it too much to hope that this might encourage him to finally open up and admit that he loved him? To admit that he was proud of him in some way? Or to confirm that Humphrey had done something? Anything? Just one thing in his whole life that his father had approved of? Apart from divorcing Anthea, of course. I'm quite an impressionist, you know. Yes, it obviously was too much to hope for. Chapter 21 Louise was perturbed. On any other day, she might even have been vexed. This sort of thing was a severe test of her almost entirely indestructible all-weather smile. She had factored just enough free time into her day to be able to jump into the shower, trim a few things and work on her general contribution to the evening's entertainment. She had not anticipated being summoned down to the embarkation area to vouch for a couple of ne'er-do-wells who had been running amok and who had thus attracted the attentions of the local constabulary. She recognised them all right, despite their somewhat dishevelled appearance. They were accompanied by a uniformed Regan and Carter, who clearly just wanted to see the back of the pair of them. They stood accused of everything from breaching the peace to assault, with a variety of additional incremental misdemeanours along the way. The situation is quite clear, miss. If you can't vouch for them and guarantee to us that they will not be ashore again, then it'll be a holding cell for the pair of them. Ros and Eleanor were not too bothered by that threat. Roy Walker's fans have been allowed to leave the scene without so much as a witness statement, a move no doubt necessitated by the fact that PC Carter had had no particular desire to arrest his dear old mum, much less to have her dark secrets exposed in a court of law. Without her and her mate, there could not possibly be a case for the Crown. These two whippersnappers were simply trying to save face and look tough, that was all. Louise had had rather enough of all four of them. People were supposed to be able to tell that they'd reached old age when the policemen all looked young enough to be their children, wasn't that it? These two did. These two could have been. Had she been a man instead of a woman, given the nature of her life up to that point, there would have probably been a very good chance that they were. But she did not want to be reminded of that now. Well, I have seen them. They are passengers. But I'm not too sure I want to vouch for them. Do you know how many people are supposed to be employed on this ship? Bloody hundreds of them. How many of them do any work? Bloody none of them. Everything lands on my bloody desk. Well, for your information, when you called me ten minutes ago to come and lay claim to these two, I was in fact preparing myself for a rather important milestone in my life. I'm trying to get pregnant, you know. Regan and Carter looked at one another. Regan had made that call to her. She had been rather breathless when she answered it, now he came to think about it. It was impossible to look at her in the same light now. He wondered where exactly she had been when she'd made a grab for that telephone. He could see bouncing. So much bouncing. She was old enough to be his mother, for heaven's sake. He couldn't imagine his own mother bouncing. Oh God, now he could. This was horrendous. Old people simply shouldn't get up to things like that. In desperation, he called into play a mental image of Carter's mother, 
She was definitely too old to be doing any of that. And yet, why could he see her? Why was she bouncing? And Roy Walker was there as well now. Holy Mother of God! With a nod to his colleague, Barney Adams' two champions were released into Louise's charge with no further charge. Regan would normally have delivered a strong warning to them, with a threat of further consequences if they were ever tempted to repeat such appalling behaviour. In this particular instance, though, he thought better of it. The mental image of either Roz or Eleanor bouncing would have meant weekly psychiatric appointments for the next six months. Besides, they'd warned Carter's mother umpteen times about her behaviour, and all it ever seemed to do was make her worse. Louise looked at the women in some disgust. The entire episode had been a monumental waste of her time, and she had to get back to work now, supervising a murder mystery-themed game on deck four. She was acquiring quite a list of people she would have liked to have chosen to be the victim, including the two women before her. Naturally, Anthea was at the top of it. The two policemen had almost exited from the scene when Regan turned back. He was obviously talking to Louise, but seemed to be having great difficulty in actually looking at her. One last thing. That demonstration out there, for want of a better word, you wouldn't be able to convince that woman to pop out onto one of the balconies and just give them all a wave or something, would you? That was an utterly ridiculous suggestion, and she told them so in no uncertain terms, toning things down significantly when her common sense intervened to remind her who she was talking to. In the end, she babbled something about the lady in question being really rather too shy for such an escapade. It didn't sound like too much of a departure from the truth. And no, her ex-husband wasn't available to pop out of anywhere either. The policeman could convey those very sentiments to the crowd at their discretion and as they saw fit, but nobody would be getting a look at either of them. And now, if they didn't mind, she had to go and orchestrate at least one murder. Strangely... Neither policeman so much as battered an eyelid at that statement. In fact, she probably could have confessed to being a mass murderer of some description and they didn't look as though they would have cared. Was she the only person in the world who actually took her job seriously? The addendum to the statement, where she mentioned how she still hoped to get pregnant, had at least made both men look at her. Although why they were looking thoughtful and turning their heads to one side was anybody's guess. Regan spoke to her, his mind clearly distracted. Before we both bounce off, um, those photographs, they've all got them down there. You would see nothing else if you went up top and bounced all the way along the... Um, somebody was selling signed photographs earlier on, at a rather inflated price. We made our way several times at varying speeds up and down the... Um, one minute he was there, the next minute it was like he'd been completely swallowed up by the... Um, we'd like a word with him anyway. From what he was telling the crowds, he must be either a passenger or a crew member of this ship. Louise wasn't about to stand for abject slander like that. He couldn't possibly be a crew member, not jeopardising our guest's privacy like that. Because if he was, I would be jumping up and down on him relentlessly from quite a considerable height. Why were they both turning their heads even further in the other direction? What had she just said? Regan was squinting at her now, too. She felt like a piece of furniture that he was sizing up to go into his bedroom or something. Right enough. We'll just leave that one on our files, then. 
Please make sure these two do not set so much as one toe back on dry land. Louise looked sternly at the ladies. Don't you worry. These two are grounded, confined to barracks, up shit creek without a plumber. You get my drift? Rose and Eleanor nodded meekly. That was a spot of particularly great acting by them both. Confined to barracks? Them? The contents of a sealed tin of corned beef would have had more room to manoeuvre than the two of them, forced into close confinement in that cabin. She wouldn't be that cruel, even if she was looking at them as though she wanted to do them both some serious bodily damage. And yet, the policeman had decided to simply remove themselves from the scene and leave her to it. The two women watched them as they went. By the time they turned back, Louise had also disappeared. Had they got away with everything then? No consequences at all for any of their actions. Oh, if only they'd known that in advance. Those bitches would have been solving quite a different collection of catchphrases, that was for sure. There would have been no reining themselves in and no turning the other cheek. There would instead have been some striking while the iron is hot, possibly a touch of punching above their weight and aiming for the taller one's shins. That last one wasn't much of a catchphrase, it was true but it had formed the basis of the half-time Barney Adams arse appreciator's team talk. Naturally, there had ultimately been no real violence. But that was only because of the fear of the consequences. Oh, if only they'd known! 